Dear church family, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said that some of the best sermons are on the shortest of texts. And some of the shortest of texts are the greatest texts in all the Bible. Tonight, I have a very short text, but it's a great text. And I pray, God, that this text will ring in your ears and resonate in your heart. And that, as Spurgeon said, if the preacher did nothing but preach repeatedly that text for the whole sermon long, you'd have a great sermon. Well, I hope tonight that this text, which you're going to hear me repeat a lot tonight, will just resonate in the core of your being and that it will go with you for days, for weeks, for months. Could it be years to come? It's simply the opening words of verse 10 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Simple, profound words. I'm calling this sermon Paul's Identity in the Resurrected Christ. With God's help, I want to look with you at three thoughts what Paul thought of himself. I am what I am. Second, what Paul thought of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And third, what God thought of Paul. But, but, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am. Paul's speaking here about his identity, who he is. And of course, that's a reflection of who he once was. And it anticipates who he once shall be. And so, you can't think about the words, I am that I am without thinking about what Paul was in the past. And that's why I read to you Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. Paul tells us really who he was in the past. This was his identity. And he mentions there basically four things. He says, number one, I was a proud man. That's who I was. Verse 5, Philippians 3, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Oh, how proud he was. In some ways, he was like Nebuchadnezzar, who said, is not this great Babylon that I have built? And you see, it's that pride that lives in all of us. We are all like that by nature. I am what I am. I'm, I'm something a little bit better than my neighbor. I'm something to be proud of. And it doesn't mean that 
we necessarily have accomplished a great deal. We can be proud over the smallest of things. I remember vividly being in Mexico where a man said to me that he was, had something outside. He had just a dirt floor for home, a little shack. And he said, I have something out in my yard I want you to see that I'm very proud of. And if you've been to Mexico, you know that it's just all, the lawns are just, just sandy kind of dirt. And he took, took me outside. And he had, a, he had a little tree planted that maybe was 15 inches high. And it was growing. And he was so proud of that little tree. But I thought, you know, from God's perspective, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done in life, it's so tiny compared to God. And yet we're proud of our little accomplishments. That's Paul. That's you and me by nature. Hebrew of the Hebrews. Secondly, Paul was an important man. I am that I am. He was important. He goes on to say in verse 5, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. He's saying, I was so zealous. I, I I couldn't just keep my faith to myself. I went out and persecuted those miserable, heretical Christians, imprisoning them. I was the important man, doing God's work. So he thought, God needed me to do his work. Again, that's consistent with our nature, isn't it? By nature, we're without God. We're against God. We even want to be God or be above God. But we think that somehow we're important. Today, of course, that's actually applauded in our society. We're supposed to have great self-esteem. We're supposed to think we're very important. We're supposed to tell children all the time that everything is wonderful with them and about them. Build up their self-esteem. When, of course, the Bible tells us that our real need is to have God-esteem and Christ-esteem and to be humbled at the feet of God. But this is who Paul was, proud, self-important. And then third, basically good. Touching the law, he goes on to say in verse 6, a Pharisee. Pharisees were, as you know, the strictest religious sect of the day. They had hundreds of man-made rules piled on top of Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures. They had the outside of the cup of their lives, very clean, such that everything seemed right and in good order. Paul actually said, I thought I kept all the commandments until God brought home the commandment, thou shalt not covet. At least outwardly, you see. I was strict. I had a list of do's and don'ts. I did the do's and I did not do the don'ts. I was a good man, a good Pharisee. Well, You and I, by nature, are like that as well. We say with one breath, we believe in the total depravity of man. And the next breath, if someone accuses us of something, we're very defensive. Deep down, we're thinking, I'm not really that bad. I'm really really pretty good. 
And then fourth, Paul was not just a proud man and an important man and a basically good man in his own eyes, but he was also self-righteous. The end of verse 6 says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Imagine that. I was blameless, Paul said. No one can lay anything to my charge. I was righteous. This is who Paul was. I am what I am. Proud. Important. Good. Self-righteous. But then something happened to Paul. Something happened to him on the way to Damascus that greatly reordered, yes, turned upside down what Paul thought he was. And he came to see himself very differently than he thought he was. In fact, he came to see himself as a sinner. Just a lost sinner in himself, needing grace. And by the grace of God, he experienced that grace. And he came to see the sinfulness of his sin. So that now, this I am that I am becomes a penitent confession. Now, I can say that the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see what happened to Paul? is that he became who he really was before God. He became who he really was before God. There was something radically different now from what he once thought he was. Now he sees his sinfulness, his enmity against God by nature. Now he sees all that he was so that all his credentials, the things that were on the asset column, became things on the liability column. He sees that everything outside of Jesus is dung, is garbage, and that his whole life was selfish and riddled with sin, exploding with sin. But by the grace of God, he now saw who he was, a sinful sinner. And he owns that sinnership before God. He doesn't only see the sinfulness of his sin now, but he sees also the holiness of God. Because on the way to Damascus, when God strikes him down, Paul cries out, Who art thou, Lord? You see, Paul was deceived about who he really was, but he was also deceived about who God really was and about who Jesus really was. He did not really know. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Isn't that interesting? Jesus so identifies with his people that he says, Paul, when you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. In all their afflictions, I am afflicted, Jesus is saying. He identifies so intimately with his people, and this overwhelms Paul. And Paul sees him as the Holy One. And he cries out, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do. You see, friends, when God converts us, He brings us before Him to see who we truly are. Nothing but needy sinners. 
but also to see who God is, nothing but the Holy One. And so what becomes real for us now when we confess I am that I am is that we are unholy sinners in the presence of the Holy God and we have no way of bringing ourselves together with Him in our own strength. You know, it's so interesting that when John Calvin began his most famous book of systematic theology ever written from the Reformed perspective called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's so interesting that when he begins the book, he says basically this, I'm not quite sure how to begin this book, whether I should talk about how we know ourselves, who we are, that we are, or should I begin by talking about who God is? And he argues back and forth with himself. And it's like you're, you're inside of Kelvin's mind as he's debating this. And finally he says, well, maybe it doesn't make any difference because when God shows us who we are, he always shows us who he is. And when he shows us who he is, he shows us who we are. And so he says, well, I'll begin with God since in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. But really the two belong together, self-knowledge and divine knowledge. So as we come to know ourselves and our own sinfulness, we come to know God in his holiness. In fact, you can't really know your own sinfulness apart from God's holiness. These two things are inseparable. They're kind of like an intersection, boys and girls, in our lives. You know what an intersection is when two roads come together and there's a stoplight. And what God does is he brings us in our life to, to a stoplight. And one road is sinfulness road, our own sinfulness. And the other road is divine holiness, God's holiness. And it's from that intersection that we learn to cry out for a Savior because I can't save myself. I'm too sinful and God is too holy. How can I be saved? Oh, holy God, how shall this unholy sinner ever find redemption in thee? And so what God does is he brings three things together now. He brings our unholiness and his holiness and the need for salvation in a Savior who can do what we cannot do, who can bring the unholy sinner and the holy God together. I am what I am. If you really see who you really are, these three things will have become more real to you than the church pews you're sitting on. I am an ungodly sinner. God is a holy God. I need Jesus. Give me Jesus or else I die. How difficult this can be. How painful this can be. You think it was easy for Paul to lose all these wonderful qualities he thought he had and see that they're all garbage and all sinful? It's so painful to lose what you are and become what you really are in the presence of Almighty God. Nothing but a sinner with nothing to offer God. 
It's all nothing. All my credentials are stripped away. I've not only not merited salvation, but I have demerited salvation. And I have merited hell and death. My life is not just a zero, a neutral. My life is a history of sin. I have a bad record. I have a bad heart. I am what I am, a sinner who deserves hell and destruction. Have you ever been there? Expecting to perish. But notice, Paul does not just become before God what he is, but he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Something wonderful has happened to Paul in becoming what he is before God as a lost sinner. He fasted for three days and three nights. He was almost beside himself when he experienced how sinful he was. But then the scales fell from his eyes. And God revealed the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul. And Paul received a new identity. By gracious spirit work faith, he laid hold of that Savior. And he found his all in Jesus Christ. It was as if he had seen Jesus face to face. He says it pleased God to reveal his Son in me. And he describes it so so poignantly here. A few verses before our text. He says Jesus was seen of more than 500 believers at once. Of whom more than half are still alive. So Paul says, I, I could take you to at least 251 witnesses. That they've seen that Jesus is risen from the dead. Christ's resurrection is not without abundant proof. Abundant proof. Paul says, all these other believers saw him. But then God, then God, after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, opened the heavens once more. And to this abnormally born sinner who is dead in himself, me, Paul, he revealed himself as of one born out of due time. What a testimony. I have seen him, says Paul, with the eye of faith, my Savior and my Lord and my God. And so by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm something very different than I once was. What am I now? Well, you can find it in Romans 6, 11. I reckon myself dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is my new identity. I have no business sinning. When I'm tempted to sin, I say, no, no, no. I, I'm a Christian. I'm in Christ. I'm to be dead to sin. Sin is to have no dominion over me. My sin is washed away in the precious blood of Jesus. I am reconciled by His blood. That's who I am. And I'm being conformed to the image of His Son. That's who I am. I'm a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a teenager who lives under the double obedience of Jesus. That He paid for all my sins in obedience to His Father suffering unto death, and that he actively obeyed the law perfectly, loving God above all, loving his neighbors himself. The two things I could never do, he has done for me. And when I believe in him alone for salvation, he imputes that double obedience to me. And all my sins are imputed to 
Him. And I become a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am now not my own, but I belong to the faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. My only comfort in life and in death. He is my total righteousness. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's beautiful, isn't it? Paul, Paul, the wolf of the tribe of Benjamin, is conquered by the lion of the tribe of Judah. The persecutor of the church is made the foremost pillar in the church. The raving wolf is made the shepherd of sheep. The murderer of Christians is now a proclaimer of the gospel, a herald, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He who used his feet to go out and shed blood now uses his feet to go out to proclaim atoning blood that has been shed. And that all for Christ's sake. All because he was seen of me. Seen of me. It's worded so interestingly, isn't it? He was seen of me. Not because I saw him, but he was seen of me. It's not salvation from my side, Paul would say. But it's all grace, all grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all grace from beginning to end. Now, I was having a conversation actually this noon with a friend. And we were talking about some things in the English vocabulary. But it's true in Greek as well. Things that are very important to us, to all of us as human beings, we end up giving a lot of words, a lot of synonyms to such things. And one of those is, of course, your eyes or or seeing. We've got lots of words for seeing, don't we? We've got uh, see, observe, gaze, look, examine, a host of them, probably 20 words if you if you did a thesaurus search for the word see, maybe you'd have 30 words for see, because our eyes are very important. What we see is very important. Well, in Greek, there are 14 words for see, and they all have slightly different meanings. But there's only one of the 14, one of the 14, that has its focus on the one, which is Jesus, who saw Paul from all eternity so that Paul could now see Jesus. In other words, there's only one that focuses on the object doing the seeing rather than on the object being seen. That's the word Paul uses here. He was seen of me. He, the one that is worthy to be looked into, He that is the God of grace. So beautiful, because grace is so beautiful. Because grace is so solid, so sure, so one-sided, so powerful, so secure. Because it's all in Jesus who cannot sin. Who's the rock of ages. Who's risen from the dead. For our justification. By the grace of God. I am that I am. Now I hasten to add, of course, that though 
if you're a believer, though your state, your state with God is one of union with Jesus, by the grace of God I am what I am does not mean that we are sinless. Far from that. Not yet anyway. That day is coming. We're still condemnable. We're still rejectable in ourselves. But you see, what Paul is saying is my identity is no longer myself as I am in myself. My identity is in Christ. So I reckon myself dead a deed unto sin and alive, alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because I'm in Christ. I have believed into him by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and I'm really one in union with him, even though I am not him. This is a mystery. Paul says in Ephesians 5, it's like a marriage. These two shall be one. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Yes, Paul says to the Corinthians, you may reject me. Yes, I may have many faults and flaws, but do not not forget, I am in Christ, despite who I am in myself. By the grace of God, my real self, who I really am, is that I am in Jesus. I am living out of grace. Yes, I know the experiential groanings every day, still today, of Romans 7 about my sin. But I also know the experiential victory of who I am in Christ in Romans 8. No condemnation. To them in Christ Jesus. No separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. Both are in me. Both are inseparable for what I am. I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner. Praise be to God. Saved by the grace of God. Martin Luther put it so famously in his familiar Latin phrase, Simo justus et peccator. At the same time a sinner... At the same time, I'm righteous, is literally how to translate it. In other words, I'm righteous in Christ, even though I'm still a sinner in myself. This is what Paul thought of himself. This is what every believer, when he has freedom or she has freedom in Christ, thinks of himself or herself. Believers can say with a Canaanitish woman, Truth, Lord, I am a dog, yet I am as a beast before thee, yet I am sustained by the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I trust in thee, Lord. My identity is in thee. My food is in thee. My life is in thee. My total salvation is in thee alone. So this is what Paul not only thought of himself, but it's also what he thought of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I want you to think this through with me. This is is absolutely beautiful. Paul can no longer think of God apart from thinking of grace. The thought of himself and the thought of God are connected. As he has low thoughts of himself, he has high thoughts of God in Christ. He can't stop admiring God. He can't stop boasting of God. He can't stop proclaiming the grace of God. Everywhere you turn in Paul's writings, isn't that true? He's always boasting of the grace of God. Time and time again his confession is, there's no value in me. It's all garbage in me. But everything is in my God. All of me is contained in the word grace. Everything I have. Everything I need. Everything I am. 
is all wrapped up. My real identity is wrapped up in this word, grace. As one of our forefathers put it so beautifully in in an acronym, grace is this, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is those things that Christ has earned and that God gives. And not only the things, but that God gives himself in Christ because of what Christ has done and who Christ is to poor, hell-deserving sinners. So this means that grace is stunningly, stunningly comprehensive. Let me just mention two areas, and you you can fill in more. Number one, grace does everything. Grace does everything for God's people that they need to have done for them. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now it's interesting if you follow what's called the order of salvation, how God works salvation in a sinner, beginning with effectual calling and regeneration and repentance and faith and justification and sanctification and assurance and perseverance and glorification. It's interesting that somewhere in Paul's epistles, you will find that he talks about all those aspects of the order of salvation in terms of grace. You ever think about that? Every single aspect he talks about in terms of grace. When he speaks of regeneration, he says to the Romans, it's not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God who showeth mercy. And mercy here is also the grace word. Or, When he speaks of justification, he says, being justified by his grace. When he speaks of sanctification and perseverance, he says, his grace makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When he speaks of salvation as a whole, he says, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. You see, salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. It's all the gift of God to demeriting sinners. Not to people that don't merit it, as if you're somehow neutral but you haven't earned it. No, to people who have demerited it, who have done the opposite, who've deserved hell, to rebels. It's all grace. And then secondly, grace does not only do everything for us as true believers, but it gives everything to us. Philippians 4.19 My God shall supply all your need according to the riches of His grace in glory by Christ Jesus. All your need. God knows we need all kinds of graces, don't we? Grace of All kinds of different things. We need pardoning grace to forgive us. 
We need restoring grace to bring us back from backsliding ways. We need consoling grace to comfort us in times when our heart is broken and our strength is gone in the spiritual warfare against sin. We need preventing grace to keep us from sin. We need accompanying grace to accompany us every moment. We need following grace to follow us all the way to the grave. I need grace in every moment, in every way, and every day, but by the grace of God. I am what I am. So does this sound like you? Are you dependent on grace? I was saying to someone in Scotland last week, I said, you know, the older I get, the longer we're married, the more codependent we get on each other. And uh, I feel like I'm codependent on my wife for so many things. But you see, in the life of grace, it's the same way. Only it's more radical. It's more comprehensive. We become more and more dependent. Not codependent. God doesn't need us for anything. But dependent on God's grace. We need grace to get through this trial today. We need grace to, to get through that physical difficulty tomorrow. We need grace to have spiritual insights in this dilemma. We need grace to be sustained. Grace for wisdom to know what to say, what to do, what to think. Grace, grace, grace for my own soul every day. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God will give dying grace when his people come to die. He gives living grace while they live. In the Dutch background that many of us hail from, there's a statement that says, God gives office-bearing grace. That's talking about ministers or elders or deacons. When they have to visit people or when they have to do pastoral work. That's an amazing thing. You know, I've experienced hundreds of times in my life, which I'm sure every minister has, who's every true minister of the gospel. You're going to do a visit. You think about what's the best chapter to read. You spend time on your knees asking for help and wisdom. You think about what you can say. You think about the situation. Or it's in a sermon. You prepare and you prepare and you prepare and you need the Holy Spirit and you get it all ready. And then in the visit or on the pulpit, all of a sudden, you can't explain it. God gives you words that <laughs> no matter how long you thought about it, you, you couldn't have come up with. He gives you grace in that situation. Office-bearing Grace. And you look back later and you say, wow, this wasn't just God's help. This was God's intervention. This was God's grace. I never could have thought of that in a million years. But God gave it to me at the right moment. Like Jesus said to his disciples. You know, if you... Of course, they had a, special, a really special calling. He said, don't even think about what you're going to say. I'll give you in the hour that you need to say it, what you need to say. You see, that's grace. So yes, we must prepare as ministers for, for, for preaching, of course. But God gives things in the act of preaching. Or God gives things in the midst of a visit that we 
we just understand this is all grace. But it's not just office-bearing grace. It's the whole life of the believer, Paul says. This is who I am by the grace of God. One-sided, free, sovereign, glorious grace. He doesn't say, by my cooperation with the grace of God, I am what I am. No, he gives all the credit to the grace of God. It reminds you here, doesn't it, of the Apostle John when he says uh, in John 1 that we're saved by grace upon grace. And in the original Greek, that could also be understood as grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. Or, as some have said, grace glued to grace, cemented to grace. It's like you boys and girls, if you, if you play with Legos, for example, you, you build something, and, but then in a moment you destroy it, don't you? But imagine if you took a piece of Lego, one Lego, and you put it there, and then you glued, maybe your mom gave you crazy glue, and you glue the next piece to that piece. You couldn't pull them apart. And then on top of that, another piece. And you built a, a big tower or a big building. It was all glued together. What John is saying is, that's like the life of a believer. God gives grace this moment, then grace the next moment. It's glued to each other. And then that, that moment and that moment and that moment. And so, until the whole structure of your life just becomes a monument to grace. And you say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This grace is my life. It's who I am. Grace laminated to grace. Grace glued to grace. Grace upon grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. My whole life is grace. Even my afflictions are grace. Even the affliction God designs for our lives is all grace to make me more conformed to the image of Christ. And all those things I fear, God knows how much we fear. All those things we fear will overwhelm us and will alarm us and destroy us. They will all serve to just be grace, grace, laminated to grace, to grace, to grace, to grace. This is what God is, who he is. This is what Paul thinks of God. When he thinks of God, he thinks of grace. Is that what you think of when you think of God? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Boys and girls, have you ever been by the ocean? Have you ever seen the ocean or maybe Lake Michigan when the waves are coming in, when there's a storm? Have you ever been afraid when you stood on the shore and those waves were coming in so big you thought, they're going to overwhelm me, they're going to come over my head. And somehow, when they break in on on the beachhead where you're standing, on the beach, they just, it just goes over your ankles. God breaks it down so it doesn't overwhelm you. That's grace, you see. That's grace. Wave after wave after wave comes into our lives. Waves of need, waves of trial, waves of affliction. It's like Jesus Christ is walking on every wave of water like he was coming to Peter or coming here to his Paul. He comes to every believer. 
not before the waves often, and often not after the waves so much as upon the waves. And saying, as it were, with every wave, it is me, it is I, be not afraid. It is my grace coming to you. Those waves won't overwhelm you. As they break in on the beachhead of your life, they'll just come over your ankles. They won't overwhelm you. I will tame them by my grace. Dear child of God, do you praise God every day for His grace? Do you thank Him every day? Do you confess a thousand times that your thoughts of God are thoughts that extol His amazing grace? Are you so overwhelmed by God's grace that you can't understand how He can possibly be so good to you when you've been so bad to Him? Sometimes you just run out of words, don't you? You just run out of words. I can't put it into words. How good is His grace to someone like me? And you just sigh. You sigh your thanksgivings to Him in holy amazement. With your whole heart. You understand what Samuel Rutherford said. Better let thy heart be without words. Than thy words be without heart. Sometimes you just groan. The groanings that are unutterable. Worked in you by the Holy Spirit. You just are amazed. That God. That God. Would find you beautiful. That God would sing over you. As Zephaniah says. That God's grace looks at you and says, thy voice is comely. I want to hear your voice, my beloved. That he loves you in Christ so much. You just can't understand it. You're so unlovable. And he is so lovable. And he loves the unlovable. He takes the best he could find, his own son, and he gives them to the death of the cross and raises him from the dead. The best he could find for the worst he could find. The likes of you and me. This is pure grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So, dear believer, receive that grace. Love that grace. Receive the love of God. Shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Don't push back against it. Don't say, well, yeah, but I'm so unworthy. I can't, I can't believe that he would ever save a sinner like me. He came to save sinners. Spurgeon said, when people come to me and say, why me? Why would he ever save me? I say to them, why not you? Aren't you a sinner? Aren't you lost? He came to seek and to save the lost. You're a perfect candidate for his salvation. Stop with this false piety. Bow before him. He loves to save great sinners. He loves to make trophies of grace. He loves to say to his people, I love you, my child, with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, cords of loving kindness, I have drawn you. Receive his love. Have you ever tried to convince somebody you love them and they won't believe it? That is very painful. What do you think God thinks when he shows his love to a sinner who keeps pushing it away? 
when the sinner needs that love more than anything else in the world. How frustrating. I've had to deal with some marital counseling issues too in, in this area where the husband could not convince the wife that he loves her. Or the wife could not convince the husband that she loves him. And the person who, who couldn't receive the love that became such a trial for the person who was doing the loving. Such a rejection. Be careful you don't reject the love of God in Christ Jesus. But you don't turn your back on grace. Embrace grace. Love grace. Receive grace. Confess grace. By the grace of God. I am what I am. But finally, this text also implicitly now speaks about what God thinks of Paul. What God thinks of Paul. It's that little word, but. See, Paul is saying, last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fitting, not fit to call me an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I deserve to perish. If anybody deserves to go to hell, it's me. But. The very next word is but. But. This is the but of God's intervention. This is what God thinks of Paul. Grace of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God intervenes. God intervenes on the way to Damascus. God kept intervening in Paul's life. God had thoughts of peace to him from all eternity. This is an eternal but. It reminds you of other examples of that in the Bible. I, I don't have time to go into them all, but just, just one. Ephesians 2.4. You were dead in trespasses and sin. But God. But God. In his amazing grace. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a whole sermon just on those two words. But God. God intervenes, you see. This word, but, is rooted in the eternal counsel of the Most High God from eternity past. From all eternity, God put that but there. God saw Paul. God knew Paul. God knew he would change him from Saul to Paul from all eternity. The but of divine intervention. Turn Paul around. Turn Paul around. He's walking with his back to God. God stops him and says, Halt! This is about face. Forward march. You see, he goes back to God. The God he deserted. The God he was persecuting. This is the grace of God. This is the fruit of the but of divine intervention. And so now, now these words, I am that I am, become all the more rich. Because who is God? Do you remember, boys and girls, when Moses saw God in the, the burning, fiery, furnace, burning fiery, fiery bush and God said, you have to go and deliver my people, Israel. You have to be their leader. And Moses says, but, but who, who can I tell the people has sent me to them because they won't believe me. I'm a nobody. And God says, you go tell them. The I am that I am has sent me, has sent you. And the I am that I am in, in, 
in, in Hebrew, it means the I was that I was, the I am that I am, the I shall be that I shall be, the eternal, unchanging, covenant-keeping God who will never desert, who will never forsake, who will never let go of His grace for you. That God is sending you to the people, Moses to the people of Israel. So here is the secret. Why Paul could say, I am what I am, is because he is lying in the decree and in the will and in the grace of the great I am that I am. The great Jehovah who throws his butts and his interceptions and his own work into our lives and stops us and turns us around and marches us in the opposite direction. This God is the God of intervening butts who turns us around so that he and his I am that I am becomes greater than our former I am what I am. And he makes us a new creation in himself, the great I am. He's almighty. His grace is more powerful than my powerful sins. His righteousness is greater than my unrighteousness. And that's why his gospel is greater than my depravity. Because he is greater than me. Therefore, his gospel is a gospel of hope, of refuge, and of victory. Though my sins mount to the heavens, his grace goes higher and sits at the right hand of the throne of God in the person of him whose name is Jehovah. I am who I am. In this I am, there is no history of sin. There is no bad record. There is no bad heart. Never has he sinned. And yet he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So dear child of God, you have a Savior who is the Son of God, who's passed into the heavens. He is God's but. You deserve to die, but he comes with his but. His intervention, his son, and he makes his son altogether lovely. And he says, In this son, you become a new creation. In him who's resurrected from the dead, in him who lives forevermore at the Father's right hand, you are no longer what you once were. But I have had thoughts of peace to you from eternity past that will last to eternity future. It's an eternal I am that I am. Well, if this is true, my friend, you are safe forever in the grace of God. And this grace, when you receive it by grace, will be so abundant, it will make you into a different person. Then you will want to go out and work for him and praise him and spread abroad his glory. You see, Paul, Paul goes on in verse 10, actually. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And then he says, but yet I worked, I worked more. I worked more abundantly than they all. Paul was a, a, wor- a worker. He, he gave his life for the cause of God. Grace was so overwhelming to him that it filled him with zeal and energy to dedicate his whole life to God. Like Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, a Christian who is fully assured of the grace of God in his life will be ten times more active 
for God than one who is not. And yet, Paul then immediately goes on. He's honest. He says, yet I work more abundantly than all. Yet not I. Isn't that interesting? But the grace of God in me. So he's saying, it's the grace of God that saved me. And now it's the grace of God that puts me to work. And the grace of God that gives me the zeal and the energy to do the work. It's the same grace that stopped me, that same grace that turned me, that same grace that made me forward march in Coram Dale in the face of God, that same grace that made me the apostle to the Gentiles, that same grace that gave me strength and energy. It's that same grace that is everything in my salvation that is also everything in my ministry. It is all grace. My whole life is grace. And so the day is coming. When not only Paul's soul, but also his body will be raised. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, Corinthians, you and I will be raised from the dead. And we will be reunited as believers with our souls. And the whole apostle, the whole man, will serve and praise God together with every single other believer. The millions upon millions that no man can number. On the great day of resurrection, when our Savior will come in the clouds and say, Friend, come up higher. And enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And well done, thou good and faithful servant. Out of grace. Come and enter in. Grace. From eternity past, in the eternal decree. Grace intervening in my life in time with a divine but. And that grace following me all my life. All the way to eternity future. And then forever and ever and ever. Who are you? Who are you? What is your identity? I hope you can say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And let that reverberate in you. Let that amaze you. Let that overwhelm you. Let it ring in your ears. Let it resonate in your heart. Were it not for this grace, you would have sinned yourself into hell long ago, dear believer. So here are three resurrection benefits. Three resurrection benefits of Jesus. Low thoughts of yourself. High thoughts of God. And by the grace of God, God having loving thoughts of you, and you bringing these three together, can say with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee so much for this simple, profound, beautiful resurrection confession of the Apostle Paul about his identity in the resurrected Lord of glory. Oh, may we embrace that identity out of the love and grace of Thyself who has given Thy only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. O oh God, help us not to rest 
Help no one in this audience to rest outside of that amazing love and that amazing grace available to the greatest of sinners. So go with us and bless us in the resurrected, ascended, intercessory, coming again, Lord of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.